I want to look at um, the calling of Elisha this morning. I've been looking at Proverbs in the autumn, and one of the things that people often ask me, probably because I'm a church pastor, is how do you know you're called to do something? How do you know it's God calling you, not just your own imagination? How do you know it's the Lord in this, not just you going for a walk and doing it because you've got the resources to make it happen anyway? And it's a very important question, calling. How do we know we're called to be and who, what we are. And I want to look at the calling of Elisha. Those of you who are familiar with this, it's in 1 Kings chapter 19. And I'm uh, just studying 1 and 2 Kings at the moment. And encourage you not to overlook books in the Old Testament that you think are a little bit, you know, we don't need to read that. The early church didn't have the New Testament, they had the Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't put into a canon form for several hundreds of years. The letters were there, but it took a while before it was actually acknowledged as the New Testament, as we understand it now. And the Old Testament is the Word of God. It's inspired, it's infallible, and it is something I would commend to us. But read it with the lens of Jesus Christ, so you get it through the New Covenant rather than the Old Covenant in which it was written. Very, very important. 1 Kings 19, 4, 19, 19 verse, uh, 1 Kings 19, verse 19. This is just after Elijah has been restored after his encounter with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. So he departed from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the 12th. Then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? So Elisha turned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment and gave it to the people. And they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. Now, we've got the first one of those little points up, Graham. That'd be lovely. So we just keep to the boundaries I've set for this morning. While you're doing that, here we go. Uh, I only want the first one. Um... First of all, Elisha is referred to as a man of God more than anyone else in the whole of the Bible. The whole of the Old Testament canon. 77 times there are references to man of God. 29 of them, Elisha. That's massive. The next highest, I think, is 12, Moses, then Elijah. And Elisha is called first and foremost to be a man of God before he is a prophet, before he is a teacher. And when we think, what is my calling? How can I prepare to be a called man as a pastor or a teacher or an evangelist? These days I say, that's great. But let's raise the stakes to what really matters. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, man of God. Well done, woman of God. Because there are those in the New Testament, Jesus speaks about them in Matthew 7, that will stand before him on the last day 
And they will say, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Some of them may even say, did we not teach perfect Greek in your name? Perfect Hebrew in your name? Perfect Aramaic in your name? Did we not pastor superbly in your name? Did we not administer brilliantly in your name? Weren't we superb youth workers that raised up a generation of men and women who conquered lands for you? But the Lord will see and look on some of those and say, away from me, I don't know you. You're not a man of God. There's a huge difference between man of God and prophet or teacher. Now, we want them to be married together, and that's where we're going this morning. But Elisha was a man of God 29 times referred to. I can't remember how many he was referred to as a prophet, but it's significantly less. Now, the reason why I say this is the Father's far more concerned with us becoming like Jesus than he is the giftings being outworked in our lives. Yes, he wants our giftings outworked. But what does this ratio tell you? Elisha's name means, my God is salvation. That in itself is a powerful statement. What is salvation all about if it's wrapped up in Elisha's name? And it's far more than just a little meal ticket to heaven. Is having the whole of our lives totally transformed and changed into the person of Jesus. The gospel is the revelation of the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is Jesus Christ, Romans 1.15. And we become Christians, we become men and women of God when we embrace the revelation of who he is in his son. And we are transformed. And like Elisha, We can say, my God is salvation, and I am a living letter, a living expression of that. It's lovely to hear Barbara this morning, a living letter and a living expression of my God is salvation. And man of God is so much more important than teacher or prophet. Those of us who are gifted know we're gifted. But we look at our lives sometimes when we compare them to that of Jesus, and we think, Lord... I want to be known by someone who's expressing your love, who's walking as you walked, who's living the life that you lived. And because this subject is important to me, and I do, this is one of the most important subjects, themes in my heart. Yesterday I had a bit of a funny five minutes with Fiona before we listened to Roger Forster teach up at Ichthus. And I had to put it right with her. Because it's so easy to go into a place like that where you're known. Oh, Simon, yeah, you're the guy who teaches and pastors in Southampton. And you can put on an act. And you can hide behind a label. Oh, I'm a teacher. Oh, I speak the word of God. But the Lord knows in your heart who's pulling your strings. And I had to put it right with that. It was was Mr. Me, Julian. It was Mr. Me that got in the way. And I apologize, haven't I? And it's all right. I'm saying that because I think we have to have a culture of transparency and openness. If you want to be a man or a woman of God, no secrets in your marriage. No secrets in your friendships. No secrets in your bank accounts. No secrets at all. Because God sees it. And he doesn't come to judge anything but that. He comes to draw us in loving kindness 
to a place where we agree with his verdict. When Jesus died on the cross, what was Jesus doing and saying when he died on the cross? He was saying, your life is fit for nothing but death, but you're worth dying for. So I can do this with Fiona because I don't want to embarrass anybody. When Jesus died on the cross, can I do this? Oh, I better not do that. Colin, can I do it with you instead? All oh, right, okay. I'm submitting to my wife. Wives submit to husbands. Husbands also submit to your wives because sometimes, quite often, more often than not, they've got it right when you haven't. So when Jesus was dying on the cross, he was making a statement about Colin, about myself, all of us. Your life is worth nothing but worthy of death. But you're worth dying for. And that's why I'm dying. So that I can take your place and you can be free and liberated. And that is the gospel. You are worth dying for, even though, in reality, your life is destined to be worth nothing but death outside Jesus Christ. It was lovely being with Ichthus yesterday, and we go there because my roots get opened up. I mean, I'm a full-blooded, charismatic Arminian, those of you who know what that means, if you don't know what it means, don't worry. But I love hearing men like Roger because they raise the bar. And one of the things he said yesterday inspired me. And I got back into some of the roots and DNA of my life. And it was overflowing a little bit yesterday at the Alpha Meal. And that is the gospel needs to be preached. It's not enough to have a good life in front of people. Because all they'll see is you. And they'll say, you're a lovely person, Steve. You're a lovely person, Aaron. You're a lovely person, Colin. And if we've got a proud issue, we'll think, well, I like that. I'll do that again. I'll rather like being told I'm good. You've got a lovely heart, Aaron. You've got a lovely heart, Andy. But they don't see Jesus. And that is why the gospel, the Evangelion, is the preaching of the good news. It is through the preaching of the gospel that men are brought to a point where they have to come to a place where they stumble over the stumbling stone, where they acknowledge there is a righteousness in heaven revealed uniquely through Jesus, and only through Jesus alone are people transformed and changed. How can they hear unless someone is sent? How can they hear unless someone speaks? It's not enough just to be a nice friend with your mates in the club or your mates down the road. And I have had to repent more than most because I have no excuse. When people say when I go out on the streets I get nervous, I have no excuse because I'm not nervous. There is not one street in this city where I would have any fear at all of preaching, proclaiming and acknowledging that Jesus Christ is Lord. I don't have that excuse. But those of you who do, I sympathize with you. But my omission is worse. One thing to enjoy fellowship again with people from the past, but in its heyday, there was no better house church movement to train evangelists than Ichthus. We had some of the cream of cream training us how to share your faith sensitively, how to defend the faith apologetically, how to stand in the seat of a scientist and not go beyond where you are in terms of thinking unless you've got a proper answer. Shape, heart-shaped lens of love, communicating everything. You don't do anything to condemn someone, but through the love of God you compel. You name it, we could write books on it. But it's so easy for it to hide under a light. 
And you get involved in things here and get distracted there. I tell you, it warms the cockles of my heart when I hear someone share that they found Jesus Christ. It should warm the cockles of all of our hearts. If it doesn't, you've got a cold heart. Heaven rejoices over one person who comes home. I'm going off piste a bit. I need to get back on track. But uh, that's the problem, you see. You, go to, you get trained by people up at Ichthus, and they don't teach you to preach. They train you to get reservoirs of stuff in the Scriptures. Resource yourself in reservoir after reservoir of Scripture so that you're prepared in season and out of season. You're not just coming with a message to impress, but you are a living letter, a living expression of the very Word of God itself. And we don't always do a good job of it, but we try our best. Anyway, where were we? We were, he's a man of God first, character over gifting. Now, calling is 90% character, 10% gifting. But let me say this very quickly. Don't attempt to do what you think you're called to if you haven't got that 10%. It's 90% character, 10% gifting, but on no account try and do it if you haven't got that 10%. You may have 90% in place to have the character of a pastor... But if you're not called to do it, don't do it because it will kill you. You may have 90% character to do the work of a teacher at school. But if you're not called to do it, don't do it because it will kill you. And those of you who teach know what I'm talking about. It's character over gifting. And Elisha had that in abundance. Next one. Let me put the slides back on. That would be great. So these are the foundations behind his calling. Firstly, verse 16, he was the Lord's appointment, not man's. Verse 16, this is the Lord speaking to Elijah and restoring Elijah. Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel. How would you say that, Cyril? (laughs) Abel Maloah? See, I'm not that good on Hebrew. What's that? Mahola. Well played. Cyril's preaching next week. You'll get the eloquence from him next week on some of these words, I'm sure. Meloha. Yeah. Abel Meloha, and you shall anoint as prophet in your place. So he was the Lord's anointed. And in terms of calling, it's not us to choose who we want to do something. We don't choose our best mates to do something because they're mates with us. One of the dangers in church, you get a church leader who just simply appoints yes men around him, his mates, who will just say what he wants to hear. You appoint and agree with who the Lord's putting his hand on. And that's what Elijah was doing. Now, if you put a photograph up here, now I've got a photograph to show you of one great prime minister, one who never made it. Winston Churchill and Lord Halifax. You can read this in the accounts of Winston Churchill's autobiography, those of you who've got insomnia <laughs> and want to read yourself to sleep. Six volumes. Sorry about boasting about reading it, but I like World War II history, amongst other things. November the 9th, 1940, Neville Chamberlain knew he was, his goose was cooked as Prime Minister. And he did not want Winston Churchill. He wanted Lord Halifax. And he had a quiet chat with both of them in one of the lobby rooms in the House of Commons. 
And he asked Winston Churchill, how would you feel about someone who could stand, and you could in those days as a Viscount, you could still stand in the, court, in the House of Commons. How would you, how would you sort of feel about uh, Lord Halifax being Prime Minister? And Winston Churchill looked out the window and just stayed silent. And Halifax knew that actually he didn't want to be Prime Minister. And in the end, Churchill got it. He got it not by a thin whisker because the majority in the Commons wanted him. It's just Chamberlain didn't want him because Chamberlain had been made to look a fool on a number of occasions by the way Churchill called it right on Hitler. Now, he was the Lord's anointed and called. I believe this man here was called to lead this country from 1940. I believe that. This man was probably better qualified in many ways. But he was an appeaser. The very next day, November the 9th this was, the very next day, November the 10th, was when the Germans invaded the Low Countries in France. And everybody stood back and thought, Winston, we need you. And Lord Halifax even knew that. Had it gone the other way, within a month you'd have probably had this man seeking an appeasement with Hitler. And the outcome would have been very different on a number of fronts. Now, I say this because the Lord's appointment isn't always appreciated by everybody. There were those that didn't like Churchill's appointment. There would have been those that wouldn't have liked Elisha's appointment. You know, there may have been someone in the prophet's school that, you know, there were 100 prophets kept, 7,000 have not bowed to Baal. And some of those prophets might have thought, well, why hasn't he chosen me? Ahijah may have thought that. Ahijah may have thought that. There were plenty of other prophets around, but actually, no, Elisha's the one. He's the one that the Lord has put his hand on. Moving on to the next one. We've had enough of these two now. But, uh, the, so his calling is to be a man of God, not a, gift, not a prophet, character over gifting. It's the Lord's appointment. We are called to recognize God's choice, not our own. And then... Zeal for the Lord. I love this. Go back to the text. Verse 20. Elijah comes down and says, you know, throws his mantle on him. And then verse 20. He, Elisha, left the oxen and ran. He ran after Elijah. He didn't just stroll or hop, scratch his head and think, well, do I, don't I? He ran wholeheartedly to follow Elijah. And it reminded me of the calling of the first disciples in Matthew 4 and Mark 1, I think it is, where Jesus calls Peter and Andrew, James and John, and they immediately leave their nets and follow. There's an eagerness, a zeal to run after the vision of the kingdom of God in Elisha's life. Amen? Now, I want my life, our lives, to have a zeal that just wants to run after the things of God. We want to run after the kingdom. We don't just amble in, oh yeah, we pray for the sick every now and then. Oh yeah, with the gospel, that's fine. Yeah, nice. Come to church, have a few pious thoughts, and then go home and think about them over the dinner table. I want a lot more than that. 
I want to see a kingdom come, will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the kind of zeal, I mean, Jesus said, zeal for the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. We haven't got a time to look at and study what zeal means. I had a name, Simon the Zealot at Ichthus, that uh, it was actually Claire's sister. Claire, is Claire here this morning? Liz Tingman, she'll be, um, Claire's sister, she'll be here in March speaking. And she nicknamed me Simon the Zealot. And I didn't mind being called Simon the Zealot. Looking back, I'm not so sure I was pretty happy about being called a zealot back then because some of the things I was zealous for, I probably am not now. But um, zeal is important. How do you catch zeal? Well, I think one of those answers, and there's many, but the one I'm going to give this morning, who do you hang around with? What company do you keep? Elisha wanted to follow Elijah because he saw he had something. Peter, Andrew... James and John, they saw Jesus had something more than the rabbi schools they'd been taught under, and they followed. Put the next uh, little sort of photo up, Graham, that'd be great. Now, I put Donald up here because Fiona and myself are opposite. She prefers Mickey Mouse. I like Donald Duck. She likes Sooty. I like Sweep because I think Sweep and Donald get a bit of bad press. In the same way, I like Tom rather than Jerry. Now, here's Donald Duck. I don't know what cartoon strip this was taken from, but we've all got this courtroom drama going on in our lives, haven't we, sometimes, where we don't know whether to do this, which is wrong, or that which is right. Do we keep company with these people that will give us more zeal in God, or do we keep company with these people where we can get away with our favourite sin because that's what they're doing? And we all do that, don't we? We run from one to the other. Well, if you read back what Elijah was saying to the prophets of Baal and to the people of Israel, is God really, is Yahweh really God? Stop hopping from one to the other. Yes, he is. No, he's not. Yes, he is. No, he's not. Is it worth following the Lord and getting around people of zeal for the kingdom of God? Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Well, I want to have an emphatic, yes, it is. It's worth hanging around people who've got a zeal and a hunger for the kingdom of God. That's why I've gone back up to London. I'd encourage you to get Eastgate to get to some of the things that Bethel are doing through Peter and Kim Carter. Get around one another in this church where you can smell and see a little bit of a fire burning for the kingdom of God because it'll catch I don't want to embarrass Cyril, but I love praying with Cyril and Gabrielle because there's a fire there that catches your heart. There are some people, I'm not saying anyone in this room, where you hang around with and you think, I don't even think we're going to get off the ground here in prayer. Hanging around the right company, so important. That doesn't mean to say that we abandon people who aren't loving Jesus. I'm not saying that. Jesus never did that. He didn't abandon people who weren't zealous for his father. But he did hang around with three and twelve. And the three and twelve weren't the masses. Who are our three and twelve that we hang around with, who we can party with, celebrate life with, enjoy good food and wine with, etc., etc., but also enjoy the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven with? And I encourage that because this year we're wanting to put in new structures of small groups. 
And if you've got any ideas, let me know. But there's a leadership team meeting tomorrow. Pray for us. Because I would love to have pockets all over the place geographically in this church of people coming together with zeal to pray, to eat, to live, to do life well together, to model transparency together, and to live in a way that is attractive to people. That's one of the reasons Alpha is so attractive, because it just brings in microcosm something of the kingdom of God. You eat, you drink, you chat, you enjoy life together, you hear something of the word together, you talk it over and chew it over. And for those of you who like to be technical, it's very Hebrew. No one's got a right answer or a wrong answer. Everybody can chip in. And if the Lord's on your case... In the end, you will stumble across Jesus Christ because he wants all men to be saved, come to a knowledge of the truth. So Elisha hung around the right people. He wanted to run after Elijah. Next one, Graham. I have to get a bit quick here now. The fourth one here is reordering relational priorities. Verse 20. Let's see what he does. He, left, he leaves the oxen, runs after Elijah and said, please let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And then he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? So Elisha turned back from him, took a yoke of oxen, slaughtered them, and boiled their flesh, and using the oxen's equipment, gave it to the people, and they ate. Now, reordering relational priorities. We haven't got time, but if you read the other references I put up there, I think in Matthew and Mark, Jesus was very clear You cannot be my... I find this really challenging. I'd love to be able to stand here with integrity and say I've really cracked this, but I don't think I have yet. Unless you love me more than your wife, son, daughter, mother, father, you can't be my disciple. Now, let me tell you what that says in the Greek. Unless you love me more than your mother, father, brother sister, husband, etc., more than me, you cannot be my disciple. Let me tell you what it means in Latin. Unless you love me more than my mother, than the mother, father, brother, sister, etc., than me, you can't be my disciple. Let me tell you what it would say if you had Aramaic. The same in terms of translation. Uh, The reason I say that is we get very complicated sometimes trying to understand what we think the technicalities of the language are to avoid the plain meaning hitting us. And the plain meaning is this. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Jesus is Lord, not Fiona Orton. Jesus is Lord, not David Orton. Jesus is Lord, not Amy Orton. Jesus is Lord, not your mother or your brother or anyone else. And part of my struggle with this is I don't like saying goodbye I'm poor at saying goodbyes I'm getting better now Amy at saying goodbyes I'm not very good at saying goodbyes I'm not very good at actually letting go of those closest to me but I'm getting there but I can't say with an absolutely 100% clear conscience I'm there yet but I want to be because I want to be freed up from a self-serving motive serving those people closest to me and that's why Jesus taught that if you want a really pure motive for serving your husband well or your wife well 
it can't get any purer than it coming through the lens of Jesus being first in your life. Because if he's not, even your best motive, Martin Luther said this, not me, I wish I'd said it, but I, wasn't, I didn't say it. Martin Luther, the guy who started the Reformation, said this, that mankind has the inward curvature of the heart, that even the very best things he's doing for those closest to him, there is a personal stake that he has in it for himself. Never a truer word. There have been times when people have said to me, Simon, you really did love your mother fantastically. I, I, I had my auntie, she was saying, it's lovely the way you come and see your mother like this. And I do like seeing her, and my motive is getting right and pure all the time. But some of it is because I'm still trying to erase some of the guilt for the way in which I treated her in the past, which was shocking. And I've been asking this, Lord, it's taken a stroke for me to really take seriously what it means to honor your own flesh and blood in the depth of motive that is pure. That's why this message, man of God, please don't call me a man of God lightly. If I'm one, I am one. And I won't call you one lightly. If you are. This is a lovely study, off-paste. 2 Kings chapter 1, Elijah, only referred to as a man of God a few times. But when he was referred to as a man of God in chapter 1 by those that came to take his life, his answer to those captains of 50 that came to take his life was this. This is a beautiful answer. If I am a man of God, then God will answer with fire. He didn't presume because he was being told by someone that he was a man of God, that he was one. He trusted the Lord to vindicate him today as a man of God, not based on some historic testimony years ago. Really, really important study. Put it under the microscope. It'll do your soul good. Trust me. Well, trust the Lord. Put, put the slide back on. It's gone. Is it back on? Here we go. Reordering relational priorities. Well, move on to the next one. And we've got to be very quick here. Sacrificial. Verse 21. This is the calling behind a man of God. Sacrificial. Verse 21. Elisha turned back, took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment. He burnt his bridges. There was no turning back here. He wasn't lining up his ducks, getting his pensions in place, getting his mortgages paid off. He wasn't someone who was getting everything lined up crossing over the bridge, then blowing it up and saying, wow, look at me, I'm a man of faith or a man of God. I admire men and women who've really burnt stuff. People who could have earned thousands of money if you're taking money as the goal. But they burnt it. Career options went a long time ago because they got a hold of the kingdom of God. And... Sometimes we can get to a point in life where we think, oh, I can serve God now because my parents are dead, my children are grown up, my mortgage is paid off, I've got a huge pension in the bank, I'm ready for you, Lord. That is not calling from heaven. If you're really called from heaven, you'll do it when God says it, his way, his timing, not when you want to do it, your timing in your way. Amen? I've seen so many casualties of people who make themselves available. I think you can't do this. 
because you haven't come through those particular furnaces or encouragements and places of faith, places of hope that shape a man of God. Amen? That doesn't mean to say if you are available, you can't serve the Lord now. In a older, no, not at all. But just make sure when we're doing it, it's within the boundaries of who we are and within the boundaries of what God has said to us. And we're not trying to borrow or copy someone else's calling. Because as soon as we do that, we get into, if you want to study it, 2 Kings 4, the axe head, the prophet that tried to cut the tree down and he lost the axe head because it was borrowed. And we can't live on borrowed anointings or borrowed callings. I know who I am in God and I know who I'm not in God. I enjoy teaching scriptures. Amongst other things, that's a calling of God on my life. But I'll never even get remotely close to the anointing on a Roger Forster. And it would be absolutely ridiculous to think I could. Because God hasn't called me to do that. You stay within the boundaries of who you are. Moving on. Moving on to the next one, Grant. He served Elijah as one better than himself. Now, this is what I love. When he left to serve Elijah, he served Elijah as his servant. It talks about how he washed the hands of Elijah. It's a lovely term and phrase, meaning he served him. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Those of you who know these two men. Who do you think had the greater anointing, Elijah or Elisha? Elisha, absolutely. Elisha's first miracle was Elijah's last. And if you look at Elisha's life, man of God 29 times, some of the things he did were phenomenal. Now, how did he learn to get that anointing? Because he served Elisha, Elijah as if Elijah was greater than him. What does it say in Philippians 2? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And that's exactly what Elisha was doing. Elisha clearly had the greater anointing. He had the double portion. His first miracle was Elijah's last. He was a man who did phenomenal stuff. If you read the books in Kings. If we're going to be men of God, we need to serve one another genuinely from the heart, not the inward curvature, as if they are better than us. And that isn't a double-minded thing. We genuinely serve people as Elisha served Elijah whether it's washing hands, washing feet, whatever it is in terms of the language we use. And if God's put an anointing on us to have a greater anointing than the person we're serving, well, he'll do that and it'll be obvious and everyone will be blessed. Amen? Do nothing. And these are so challenging. There are times when I can serve someone and I think, I could do a far better job than that. I could do that far better. And you think, what a proud attitude. Because even if I could, it's the grace of God. What is a better way of doing this? What is a better way of serving? Stooping down and lifting them up to a level of grace where they are serving really well. 
And that's what Jesus did with us. That's what it says in Samuel of God. His greatness stoops down to lift us up and make us great. That's what David says of Yahweh. And then finally, perfect timing. Elisha was called as a very young man. David was called as a young man. So too was Joseph. Some of you have had words on your life at 17, 18, 19, 20. Some of you may have words on your life in older age. But sometimes the timing of when a word is given and then comes into fulfillment can be longer than we sometimes like. (laughs) Have you ever had that? You think, I really do wish this would be... Lord, I wish you'd get on and fulfill this. I wish you'd get on and do this. It doesn't seem to be quite going to my time scale. As a reason for it, you can have an anointing. David was anointed king and everybody knew he was anointed at the age of 17. But it took 15 years to get his character and wisdom into shape where he could actually serve as a king God's way, not his own way. Joseph was anointed to serve in government and leadership at the age of 17 when he got the dreams. But it took 13, 14 years for his character and the wisdom that he needed to serve in that gifting. Elisha was anointed right here and now, very young age. But it would take years for him to grow in wisdom, stature and character to serve in that anointing. If you read, I think it's in Luke 2.52, it talks about how Jesus grew in stature and wisdom. And there came a point in Jesus' life, modeling to us what it is to be a man of God ultimately. The Holy Spirit fell on him, on his baptism. And if I can say this of the Lord, he had the wisdom and the stature and the anointing all coming together in one. Now some of us are living in unfulfilled promises And we can say, 1986, God said this to me. 1996, he said this to me. 2004, he said this to me. But we haven't grown up. We haven't allowed the Lord to shape us and to put into us the wisdom that is then able to steward correctly the anointing and the gifting God's called us to do his way, not our way. Amen? It's true. It really is true. I'm going to pray and I'd like us to worship a little bit before we close the meeting. I don't want to speak for any longer. But I do encourage you to go home and study this. Let's stand.